Amen. Well, if you turn in the book of Genesis, chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 16 to 20, or sorry, 16 to 33 this morning. 16 to 33. We're going to really focus on 20 to 33 because we've already covered the first four verses in depth last time, but I want those on there for context because it's one conversation that God is having here with his servant Abraham. Last time we saw how the essence, as it were, of our salvation can can be said to be in the fact that God has known us, that God knows his people in a special way, in a transformative way, an intimate, a loving knowledge, a knowledge that reveals God in and to us so that we are brought into God's secret counsel so that we know God in this special saving way that is only possible by faith. The unbeliever can know that there is God, can know a lot of things about God, but he cannot know God savingly. He cannot be brought into God's special, intimate counsel and nearness except through faith in Christ. And this is what God has pointed out about Abraham, that he has known him so that Abraham would teach his children after him so that God would bring to Abraham the things he's promised. And so he focused on that and on that nearness and that closeness and that fullness, that knowledge of God that we will have for all eternity. It will always grow because God is infinite. So we'll always know more and be in more awe of the beauty of God and we'll always know more and be in more awe of the loveliness of Christ and we'll always for uh, everlasting time know more And be more desirous of righteousness and holiness and glory as we will walk in it perfect before God, praising him forever and ever. As Jesus declared in John chapter 17 verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so we left off noticing that God's knowledge of us is not the end. It's the beginning. That's where we begin to know him and want to serve him and live that life of salvation. And that begins now. Right now we have eternal life. Right now we've entered in that place where even if we die we live. And we go to be with the Lord. And so this is the beginning. This knowing of God. More and more all of our lives as, uh, and, and we begin to serve God. We begin to do good works. I've said to you many times the quote of Martin Luther, which I completely agree with, that only the Christian can do good works. And believe me, Martin Luther knew they were never perfect or pure, but what he meant was only the Christian can do anything out of a sincere and real love for God, which is necessary for a, good, a work to be good. Martin Luther knew that every one of our works were completely still corrupted with our sins. They're never perfect, but there's real love for God. There's real faith in Christ. There's a real desire for good. That's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Calvin called our good works splendid vices. They're splendid. They're from Christ. They're by his grace. No unbeliever can do them, but they're vices. They're still tainted with sins. Well, now in the text, as we move on, to the second part of the conversation, Uh, we come to one of the most foundational aspects of God in the Bible, that God is righteous 
that God is just. Two places in the scriptures, Psalm 89, 14 and Psalm 97, verse 2, declare that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Nothing else in the Bible is said to be the foundation of God's throne but righteousness and justice. Why is justice so important to who God is and to what we are to know about him? Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for this word, this word that perhaps like no other in the Bible shows us your justice and shows us your mercy. Help us, Lord God, to be transformed by your word as we consider who you are, the God who is just. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16 again with a focus on 20 through 33. This is God's holy and perfect word. Then the men rose from there and they looked toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city? For lack of five. So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and, says, and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. 
So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. The word of the Lord. This is one of the probably most well-known texts of Scripture. Abraham pleading for the cities of Sodom. I want you to notice the importance of justice. I want you to notice the importance of justice. There's probably no more uh, concentrated passage of Scripture dealing with the justice of God in all the Bible. God created everything in justice. Scripture says repeatedly to us. Psalm 111, verse 7. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All of his precepts are sure. Now think of it for a second. What does it mean that all of God's works are done in justice or are done justly? How is it that God could have said to be have, to have created injustice? I mean, what does that mean? Well, there's a certain propriety. There's a certain fittingness to what God has done. So, for example, when we saw in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the birds, right? He puts them in the air. He gives them wings so that they can fly. He gives them what they need to function in the air. And when God makes the fish of the sea, he puts them in the sea where they can live and move. They, he gives them fins and, 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 and tails and he gives them gills so that they can function in the sea. There's a, there's a fittingness, a propriety when God makes the, the creatures and he puts them on the land. He's already made the dry land appear and I didn't mention it, but in all those realms, the, the air and the sea and the land, God has put all that the creatures need to live and to move and to have their being. There's the vegetation that they can eat Right? There's the, either the water that they can breathe in if they have gills or there's the air above and they have lungs. And so God, again, has created everything justly. Do you see that? It's, it's just. He makes a creature. He tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he gives them all that they need to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, putting them exactly where they need to be. It's fitting. It's just. And of course, this is most uh, obviously seen in man who is made in the image of God according to the likeness of God and what does God command man? To have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. To rule over them, to be like God in the earth, to live according to righteous and righteousness and justice and holiness and God has made man in his image. He has all that he needs to be righteous and just and holy. This is the justice by which God made everything. You see that. It's, it's fitting. It's just. And of course we lost that ability as human beings in the fall. We lost all righteousness. We are now dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't even begin to meet that which God made us, that which God enabled us, that which we had all the ability we needed. We, because of our own choice and fault, we lost it. It wasn't God who took it. We lost it. And so Jesus, when he comes, 
with the gospel tells us about the righteousness that we are to seek. Right? That we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Something not possible before we are born again, before we are converted. Abraham is called to be God's man, God's uh, teaching justice and righteousness. We saw that back in verse 19. How can Abraham do this? Because God has known him. So he can do this. Can't do it perfectly. Doesn't guarantee anything. Can't earn anything. But he can now begin to function in that role that God created him for. And so can we. And the gospel tells us again to seek first that kingdom and that righteousness. Think of the Lord's prayer. We are to pray that God's name, you know, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Which is what? Justice and righteousness on the earth as it already is done in heaven. This is the importance of justice to God. For Israel, their inheritance depended upon it. When they're about to go into the land in Deuteronomy chapter 16, God says this, verse 20, justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and inherit the land, the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That's why God saved them. That they would go in the land and be a just people, a righteous people. That's why God has saved us, so that we would be just and righteous. He commands us, be righteous as I am righteous, be holy as I am holy. It's the purpose of our salvation. It is absolutely crucial. And it was because Israel was not just that they were exiled, that they were banished from the land. Isaiah chapter 59 Verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. I want you to think of that concept of equity. I know it's given different definitions, but the the definition when we see it in scripture is that everyone is treated with a kind of equal fairness and treatment. Again, according to the same law, because we're all equal. Right? If I dig a hole for $100 and that's the going rate for that hole, I should get it. Whether you do it, somebody else, older, younger, different race, doesn't matter. If there's a law in place, everyone should be treated equally under the law. That's equity, right? But it's based on performance. It's based on what you've earned. It's not egalitarian regardless of your action. Everyone gets the same outcome. Everyone has the same opportunity and they're treated according to the same principle. That's equity, Some get treated better than others because some did what they should do, right? A general should have more responsibility and get higher pay than a private. But that same private, if he does all that the general did to become a general, he should get the same because it's equity. But it's not that they're the same now. They're different. The general needs to have more. He has earned, he has done more. He is in greater responsibility. He should get greater pay. Equity doesn't mean the same for everyone. Equity means the same principle, justice, fairness, because again, we're all equal. And this is why, beloved, every example of a monstrous society like Stalin's communist Russia that murdered tens of millions of its own people or like Nazi Germany that killed and murdered six million Jews, whenever you begin to do that, you have to make a certain segment of people less. You have to make them inferior. You have to make them lower. That's what the Nazis did with the Jews. They were less human. They were inferior human. That's what the the Russians did with the non-communist party. They were less human. The bourgeoisie. They needed to be wiped out. 
And they did by the tens of millions. But you can't do that. You can't begin a program of genocide until you make the opposition less than human. Well, then of course they need to be wiped out for the greater good of the higher humanity. Right? This is why it's absolutely crucial. Whether it's race, whether it's sex, whatever it is, age, that we are all absolutely equal. That doesn't mean we're all the same. It's never meant that. We have different strengths and weaknesses even in this congregation, right? And that's true of the sexes, and I spent all that time showing the strengths of men and the strengths of women, the strengths of, and the weaknesses of both and, and how they're all over the place. But you can, you know, in general say, yeah, this is what men are better at, this is what women are better at. Equal, but different. The same is true for the races. There are different things that we can see in different races, even things like height. Right? You go, you know, when the soldiers in Vietnam went over, the American soldiers went over and began fighting over there. It's funny, if you read any of the war books about it, the, the young Vietnamese soldiers, they didn't know if their bullets would work against the Americans. They were so big. But because there, there's a racial difference in height in those peoples, and there's all kinds of, there's even mental differences in the races. Difference, but equal. All equally human, all equally valuable, all therefore get the same rights, right? But then it's based upon your individual performance and what you deserve. And that's why justice is probably the most fundamental principle of human relationships, that there needs to be justice between man and man. There can't be a society without it. The very first thing, right, that our Constitution says that we are to establish Right? The Constitution now. We the people. Right? Now, if you're like me, you've got to think back to Schoolhouse Rock, and then you'll get it. <laughs> Boy, they, they made a mistake when they took that off the air. We the people, right, of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, what? Establish justice. <laughs> you remember the song? Come on. <laughs> Establish justice. The first thing that the Constitution says. You can't have a people without justice. This is the importance of justice. The first thing, uh, our, our, our founding fathers knew that. Now, traditionally, justice has been classified in three different areas. There is retributive or punitive justice. That is when somebody does wrong, they need to be punished, right? Punitive justice. Then there is distributive, distributive justice, which again is what I, like what I said before. You know, everybody gets treated the same according, again, to their own performance and so forth. So for example, the driver's license test. We all take the same tests, right? You don't get different tests because you're this or that person. And you all have to pass that test. And then you all get the driver's license. But you have to do it. And the person who doesn't pass doesn't get it. Nobody's, it's not everybody gets the same. You have to go in, you have to try to get the same opportunity. If you perform, you get a license. That's properly distributive justice, distributive justice because it can become the socialist communist idea where everyone gets exactly the same regardless of input, regardless of merit, regardless of desert, and that's when it becomes injustice and wicked. But classically, distributive justice, again, has to do with holding each person accountable according to the same law according to the same standard, same rights, and what you deserve. Did you perform what you're supposed to? Then you get the A. You didn't perform, you get the E. Doesn't matter who your parents are. Doesn't matter if you had a bad day. Did you do what you're supposed to? 
Distributive justice, everyone, no matter who you are, gets that A. You didn't do it, everyone, no matter who you are, you get the F. In Salzburg, you got E's. You did. At least I heard that you did. <laughs> but that's uh, the first two. The last one is uh, commutative or even commutative justice. And that has to do with uh, contracts and commerce and trade. And that's why in Israel it was so crucial that they have, you know, the, the just balances. How many verses talk about having those just balances? Because money was by weight. You know, and if, you had a, if you had the scale set up so that like it was a little bit off, then you would get, they'd have to give you more than an ounce of gold or silver or whatever, and you were a thief at that point. But that's commutative justice, that there would be this principle that's equal. A pound is a pound in New York or Los Angeles or Pittsburgh. It doesn't change. It doesn't change because of who your father is or what your skin color is or whether you're a man or a woman. It's the same in commerce. Justice, right? But if you don't have the money, you don't get it. You have to have the money. To pay, so there is justice and commerce. Now, today, we have taken those three categories, and that's really all justice can be: punitive, everybody's treated according to the law and what they've done, and then in trade and 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 so forth. There's really no other kinds of justice. You know, maybe you could distinguish sometimes divine justice, where you know God's justice is a little bit different, and then it's absolute, and you know you don't you can't ever question it or something like that. But for the most part, those are the three. Today, however. We have codified, we have invented, I don't know, maybe, maybe hundreds, but certainly dozens of different kinds of quote-unquote justice that actually are injustice, that in the irony of ironies are said to be justice, right? So we have things like environmental justice and racial justice and social justice and reproductive justice, and trans justice, and on and on and on and on and on. Economic justice, housing justice, whatever it is, justice, justice, justice. But all of these so-called justice movements or ideas involve favoring or punishing different groups. Groups, regardless of the individual's actions or deserving or merit in their own personal lives, and based upon assumed and unchallengeable value judgments of history, which is often revisionist and false, morality, this is right and wrong, even though these same people will say there are no absolutes, and humanity, this is what humans are, can't even say male and female anymore, their view of humanity now reigns. Reality, what is real, and the goal of all of this is to make everyone exactly the same because then we'll have utopia so they say but actually what results in this is discrimination oppression and exploitation because two groups are said to be in every one of these categories you have the oppressor group and the oppressed group the oppressor group whatever is done to them is is ultimately okay because they deserve it they're the oppressor group and the oppressed group whatever they get is ultimately okay because they deserve it. They're the oppressed group. And that's the movements today in a, in, in a nutshell. If you want more information on this, I, if you're newer to our church, go to our website, Providence website, go to our YouTube channel and just do a search on the word justice. I did a 13-week uh, course on social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, and woke 
back in 2020 and 2021, December through February, 13 weeks, ton of research we put into that, and that will, I think, bring biblical light on, on these categories. But what I want you to notice is how important justice is in our society. There is no greater issue of consequence today than the battle over justice. And it is no exaggeration to say that our civilization hangs in the balance. This is the importance of justice. Secondly, I want you to notice the God of justice. The God of justice. This entire discourse depends upon and assumes, number one, that justice is good and desirable, and number two, that God is altogether perfectly and unchangeably just. That is what we see is assumed by Abraham in this text. Let me give you some verses that back this up. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. God is the rock. His way is perfect. All his works are justice. A God of truth without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Is that an incredible verse? Psalm 33, verse 5. God loves righteousness and justice. To do Justice and righteousness is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Proverbs 21.3 and on and on and on. God is just. Absolutely and perfectly just. Always completely, perfectly just. Injustice can't even enter into God's mind as a possibility. And God in this text, so what's going on in this text? God reveals to Abraham the punitive purposes that he has for the five cities of the plain. That happens in verse 20 and 21. Remember God before that in verse 19 is thinking 18 and 19. He's thinking should I let Abraham know what I'm about to do? A punitive justice action against these five cities. And then he says it in verse 20 and 21. He decides in other words yes I am going to let Abraham know. So and the Lord said because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great because their sin is very grave I will go down now and I will see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me and if not I will know. And Abraham immediately understands what God is saying that he's going to completely and totally destroy those cities. Now I don't know if you would get that from verses 20 and 21 but Abraham understood it. God's going to go down and visit the city. If you do a study on the Hebrew word to visit so many times when God brings judgment, it says he brings, you know, he comes and visits that people. He will visit that people. Or sometimes you'll hear it in the New American Standard, the day of visitation. Some of you probably recognize that from the scripture. When God comes and visits a people, ooh, you don't want that. You don't want God coming to visit because he comes in his holiness and his fire and in his judgment and as he passed through uh, Egypt and killed all the firstborn, even that was a great restrained visitation. So Abraham gets it. That's why you get this plea in verse 23 immediately, right? Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? See, Abraham knows he's going to destroy them. That's what, it mean, that's what 20 and 21 means. I'm going to go down and check it out. And if they've done it, I'll know. And I'm going to destroy them. Is understood. And that's why Abraham play, prays immediately. Are you going to destroy everything? What about the righteous? All right. So God is talking about this immediate, particular, divine judgment that's about to come because of the sins of the people. We're not told what they are yet. We're just told an outcry, right? That sin cries out to God for justice. That the, that especially the harm that, have, that is done by sin cries out to God for justice. This isn't the first place we've seen this. All the way back at Genesis chapter 4, when God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood, right? 
cries out to me from the ground. Cain's blood, Cain spilt Abel's blood unjustly. Not that Abel wasn't a sinner, he was. Abel certainly deserved death before God as everyone else does, but Cain had no right to kill Abel. There are times when there's justifiable homicide in the Bible, self-defense, the Bible says you can even kill someone in self-defense, war, there are times when there's war, execution, the Bible teaches capital punishment. There is justifiable murder. But when somebody kills another with premeditation, with desire, Bible talks about accidental death too, and that's not judged the same way. But if somebody intentionally kills someone else, that's murder, and that blood cries out to God from the ground. And that's what happens with Cain and Abel. In chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 7, God says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry, my people's cry, because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And so here, the, the, the cry of slaves under a totalitarian oppression system of his own people, God's people being oppressed as slaves and the cruelty with which they're treated, that cry of injustice goes up to God as the cry of injustice of Cain goes up to God. And God commands his people, when they get into the land, don't you do injustice. Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Now, why is it mentioned them? It's not that the widows or orphans are special in the sight of God. It's that they're the powerless ones. So God has to really give an extra command here because anybody can go and pray upon a widow or an orphan, take advantage of them, even as is done today, so often at the governmental level. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them in any way, listen, and they cry at all to me, God says, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot. Listen to this. And I will kill you with this sword and your wives shall be widows and your children shall be orphaned. Boy, that's justice. You want to go and afflict widows and orphans? I'll make your wife and your children a widow and an orphan. God is serious about justice. Justice between man and man. That's what all these verses are talking about. Man and man, he hears the cry when someone is treated unjustly. When it is done in an act of evil. And yet, what is the number one criticism of our faith and of our God? That he isn't just. Isn't that the case? I don't know about you, but every time I get into any kind of a discussion with an unbeliever, where it's me trying to show that the Bible's true, at some point, they're going to say to me, their argument's going to boil down to, God isn't just. I used to believe in God, pastor. Oh yeah, when I was six or seven. But then God took my mom with cancer and I don't worship him now he was wrong to do that he was I'm not saying there isn't real suffering but that'll be it it'll be some act of real suffering something that they see in the world and they blame God and they're right in the sense because their 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 cry is I didn't deserve that and they're right they deserved a lot worse They deserved that everyone that they knew should have died of cancer. They should have died of cancer and they should all be in hell. But they don't see it that way. They see something done and they blame God and God is wrong. And if God hadn't done me wrong, maybe I'd be open to your gospel. Every time I ever get into a debate with an unbeliever, it always boils down to that. God is wrong. God didn't treat me right. I 
God owes me more. And that's what we see over and over again. God wronged me. God has not given me my due. And yet Abraham's argument at every point in these six different petitions that Abraham makes, and that's what you get in this text, six petitions, every one of his arguments depends on one premise and only one, that God is just. Abraham is building his argument on that one premise that God is just, that God cannot possibly do anything unjust. Look at that, how that purpose comes out in verses 23 to 25. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Would you really do that? Suppose there were 50 within the city. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, God mentioned in verse 20. Now he's just mentioning the city because sometimes it's just said Sodom. Sodom is the biggest city of the five cities. There's Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Zor. Okay? In that time, cities, you could see, even today, right? Oakland, San Francisco. You can see them right across the bridge, you know, or the twin cities in Minnesota. Well, so you have these five cities close together, Sodom the biggest, Gomorrah almost as big, and the other three much smaller. And what Moses, or sorry, what Abraham says here, would you suppose there were 50 righteous within the city? In other words, within the five cities, just 50, within the five cities. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the sake of the 50 who are in it? And then, the, you know, the clincher here, far be it from you. Do you see how Abraham's argument, the whole argument is on what God will do because God is just. Far be it from you. You would never do that. Human beings might do that, but you would never destroy. You would never treat the righteous as the wicked. That is unjust, and that's based on human merit and performance. You're only righteous or wicked by whether or not you've done or not done something. And Abraham, again, understands that God is just, and the whole argument is based on that all the way through. This is why Abraham is so bold, because his argument is that God is just, and he can come and get before God like this and say to him, far be it from you. He's pleading the very character of God back to him. You see how powerful that is? When I pray based on the character of God, God, you can't do this because you're just. Abraham understands there's not, a, there's not an unjust bone in God's body, as it were. Not an unjust thought in his head that's ever passed through. That's why Abraham is so insistent that God will be just. He doesn't place any hope, think of it, in the possible future reformation of these people. Well, wait a minute, Lord, maybe they'll be better in the future. He doesn't place any hope in that. He never questions God's judgment of their sin. Isn't that interesting? We're not, we're not told what their sin is here yet, but he never says, you know, God, are you really looking at this right? What is the outcry? I want to know. And what if he found out it was homosexuality? In the main, there were other things too. I wonder if Abraham would have questioned that, right? Of course, we know he wouldn't have, but what would we do today? Oh, wait a minute, God. You really sure homosexuality is a sin? Haven't you heard of equal marriage? Haven't you heard of love wins? Haven't you heard of this is the way God made me? Abraham doesn't question God's judgment. He knows if God says it's a sin, it's a sin. I don't have to question that. He doesn't question God's judgment. He doesn't look to the possible changing circumstances of the people. He doesn't try to cajole God himself or threaten him and say, you know what, I'm not going to be your man anymore. 
or try to manipulate or try to charm God or promise some future sacrifice, his whole argument is you are just, therefore hear my prayer. His whole confidence is on God's. This is the God of justice. God is perfectly just. Therefore, notice the justice of God, thirdly. Notice the justice of God. If we only consider what man deserves, isn't this text complete confusion? How could Abraham be asking God to spare the city if there are 50 righteous? How many places in the Bible does it say things like Romans 3? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Are you talking 50? There's not 50 righteous. There's not 30 righteous. There's not 10 righteous. There's not one righteous. Abraham isn't righteous. This whole thing is a waste of words. Why is Abraham pleading with God for something that he knows himself doesn't exist? Righteous people. Well, that's because he's not talking about ultimately, perfectly, sinless, righteous people. Abraham is God's man. God's chosen him. He's entered into a covenant with him. Does Abraham think he's perfectly righteous? How does Abraham worship God? What has he been doing throughout the land? He builds altars. Why does he build altars? To sacrifice animals. Why does he sacrifice animals? Because he knows he's a sinner. Because he knows he's not righteous. He doesn't, he's not looking for that. If you read that into this text, it makes no sense. Abraham is not saying if there are 10 perfectly righteous, sinless people, spare the city. He knows there aren't any of those. What is Abraham asking for? Kyle and Delich say it well, but most of the commentators pick up on it. 10 righteous persons in Sodom, quote, by which we understand not merely 10 sinless or holy men, but 10, listen, 10 who through the fear of God and conscientiousness had kept themselves, listen, free from the prevailing sin and iniquity of these cities. They didn't go along with the prevailing sin and iniquity that these cities were identified by. They continue to say, no, that's a sin. That's a sin. I don't care if you say it's okay. I don't care if the government says it's okay. I don't care if the schools are teaching it's okay and normal and natural. God says it's a sin and we still believe it's a sin. I wonder how many are left in America that believe that for the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. I wonder how many. I can tell you so many Christians, when, it, when it's an immediate family member, suddenly it changes. Suddenly it becomes different. Oh, well, it's, you know, it's not a sin anymore because it's my son, my daughter, my, my cousin, my nephew, my niece. I wonder if that's how Sodom and Gomorrah got to where they got. First resistance and then it hits home. Ah, oh, must not be a sin. I have to love them, right? If you loved them, you would never say it was okay. You would never say it's okay if you love them. Ten righteous people, ten people who did not go along with this sin. We see how it whittles down. We see how Satan, I'm sure Sodom and Gomorrah did not start off that way, but Satan, when he gets in and people accept it and people allow it and it just spreads. And that's what happens in this, in this place. 
And God is patient and God is long-suffering. God doesn't destroy it. Think of it, not 20 years before, about 20 years, probably a couple more, 21, 22, somewhere in there. Years earlier, Genesis 14 happens. Remember Genesis 14? Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Zor. They went into captivity. Catalamar and his four kings, his, well, four kings total, his three king buddies, took over the five kings of the cities of the plain. They all went into captivity. They went in chains. Many of them were killed. You talk about an opportunity for repentance for these five cities. And Abraham goes to war with his 318 men and he rescued them all and he brought back all the persons and he meets the king of Sodom 20 years earlier and Melchizedek is there and they see Abraham give all the glory to the Lord. And they see the priest of the Lord most high, Melchizedek, and they hear the gospel. And they go back to the way it was immediately. We got our cities back. Woohoo! We got our prosperity back. Let's go sin more. They had an opportunity. They had many opportunities. God is so long-suffering. God is, God is so patient. We know Abraham's not even going to get the land, his descendants, until God gives 400 more years of patience to the wicked Amorites. These are Amorites too. They're just a lot worse. They've isolated themselves off. They're not going to get the 400 years. They've gotten too bad too quick. But what I want you to notice is that God has mercy. The, the justice of God also includes mercy. The God who is just is also merciful. The God who will bring, bring perfect justice first brings mercy and mercy and mercy and long-suffering and mercy and opportunity to repent and opportunity to repent. But eventually, the mercy will run out. And that's what he's saying to Abraham here. But what I want you to notice is how God will make sure God will never judge a people until he is absolutely certain that they have now filled up, as it were, the cup of wrath. And it takes a long time, even in this sinful world, because God is so merciful for that to happen. But I want you to see it in verse 20 and 21 again. Listen to this. Now, it's an anthropomorphism, okay? 20 and 21. God speaking to Abraham about a cry that's come to him, and he has to go down and see if it's true, because he doesn't know. We understand God is teaching us something about what's going to happen, not that he didn't know something or that he's not down there already. He's already there. He's already here. God's everywhere. There's a sense in which you understand this, right? God never actually moves. God never goes anywhere because he's already there. How can he move? Where can he go that he's not already? He's already in Sodom. He already knows everything. But he's explaining to us what? He's explaining to us how careful he is before he judges. He's going to go down. He's going to check it out. He's not going to act until he's turned over every stone, until he's heard every testimony, until he's seen every heart. He will not act unjustly. He's going to go down and check it out. This is what God is communicating to us, how careful he is before he judges. He's not like a human judge. He doesn't miss evidence. He doesn't make mistakes. He's not persuaded because those people are relatives. He doesn't take bribes. He is perfectly and altogether utterly just, but he is so merciful and so long-suffering. John Calvin says it this way, quote, God never breaks forth to inflict punishment except on those who are mature in crime. This is a special particular judgment of God. There's a sense in which everything that happens reveals God's displeasure, right? Natural disasters, war, disease, thorns, thistles, suffering, death, pain, sweat. Wouldn't be here if this wasn't a fallen world. But God does act sometimes. 
in a particular judging way. He tells, Jesus talks about it in the letters to the seven churches. Repent or I'm going to do this. Even in the church, how much more in the world? But Calvin says, not until, not until God is so patient. Again, the Amorites, they get 400 more years, according to Genesis 15. You see it in our text in verse 21. I will go down now and see whether they have, here it is, whether they have done all together according to the outcry. You know what it says in Hebrew? If in accordance with the outcry that has come to me, here it is, they have made a completion. They have completed it. They have perfected it. They have filled it up. Again, the Bible's concept of this is they fill up their sins. Jesus talks about the generation of God's wrath. Go and fill up the sins of your father. You will fill it up to the point where now God's going to judge. And that's what God says. Whether, there have made, whether they have made a completion, has it reached the point where even my mercy will give them no more time and they will be judged. Notice Abraham never asked for God to leave the wicked unpunished. He never says that. He never says, don't punish sinners. Don't punish particular sins. He doesn't even pray for the unrepentant sinners. He prays for those who are not sinning. He prays on their behalf. What if there be 50 righteous? He doesn't say, God, you're being too mean. What if there be 40 righteous? What if there be 30, 20, 10? He's praying for those who, again, have not given in to the sin of their, their day, have not given in to the sin of their culture. Those ones. You know how, how, how long-suffering God is on this? I want to read to you from Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. Here God is describing his coming judgment of Jerusalem. And we know what happens when Babylon, Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Israel have become so corrupt by this time, all right? And God is directing an angel to go in and wipe out the, the Jews because his judgment has come. And it's in, it's in Ezekiel where God says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in this city, they wouldn't save anybody by their righteousness, but only themselves. So this is how bad Israel has gotten, Jerusalem. And yet still, listen to God's mercy. So God said to the angel, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, I love this, put a mark on the forehead of the men, listen, who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. That's all. People who are still saying this is a sin and I'm, I'm mourning that my country is sinning like this. And to the others, the other angels, he said in my hearing, go after him, go after the one putting the mark and go through the city and kill and do not let your eyes spare nor have pity. Utterly slay the old, the young, the maidens, the little children, the women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. If we just still mourn for the sins of our country, God considers that something. I mean, beloved, who is more persuasive to God in this text? Is it the vast majority of individuals who are sinning, who are continuing in sin, the, the vast majority of rebellious and brazen sinners of, in the five cities, or is it, is God more affected by the possible very small minority of righteous people? I mean, who's more impactful on how God's going to do something? You have the whole city is given to sin, but if there's only 10 in, in five cities, two per city, 
God won't bring judgment to any of them. The whole thing will be called off. This is how impressed, this is how important it is. This is how effective we are when we stand against the culture. We might not change the laws. We might not change the minds, but God sees. And those 10 people would have stopped God's judgment if there would have been 10. Don't think, well, what influence are we having? Stand for God and God will see. And so fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the intercession of Christ. Notice the intercession of Christ. We see Abraham interceding for the righteous that may be found in the five cities. No doubt, I mean, he's thinking of Lot at one level, right? Lot is his nephew. Lot went down there. Remember how many people Lot had? Lot and Abraham had so many flocks and herds that they couldn't dwell together. So Lot took all of his people. They went to Sodom. Had to be hundreds, maybe a couple of thousand. And Abraham's thinking of all those people that he knows, people that he led in worship. Remember, Lot is a believer. The Bible shows that. Lot was, is called righteous Lot. Lot is one, according to the Bible. Three times, 2 Peter 2, 7, and God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. He was mourning over it. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, tormented his soul. He mourned over their sins by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So no doubt Abraham's thinking of Lot. Yet we would be mistaken to say that Abraham's praying here for Lot. Why? Because he never mentions Lot by name. He doesn't say anything about Lot. I have no doubt he's thinking about him. But Abraham rescued those five cities. He remembers those people. He brought them out. He probably saw their tears of joy when he rescued them and gave them back their freedom. He brought back all the people. He was thinking of them. And he was thinking well of them. He was hoping for better of them. He was hoping that there must be more. There must be people in those cities who aren't swept up with this wickedness. It can't be that they're all completely wicked. And so he's actually interceding. I want you to think of it for Sodom and Gomorrah. Matthew Henry says, quote, this is the first solemn prayer that we have upon record in the Bible. And it is a prayer for the sparing of Sodom. That's Matthew Henry. He's not a lightweight. He's not reformed, but. John Calvin says that Abraham had lately rescued them from their, their enemies. He's remembering the, the five versus four Kings war. But then Calvin says this, I certainly do not doubt that he was so touched with a common compassion towards the five cities that he drew near to God as their intercessor. Abraham interceded for these cities of wickedness, hoping and believing that they weren't given over to it, hoping and believing that there could still be another season of grace. Maybe some would repent, maybe some would, he doesn't base any of his arguments on that, but he's praying for them. And I know we need to hear this text today because I'll tell you what, beloved, we see our culture going down the same path. And I don't know about you, but I've seen many Christians tempted to call down God's wrath and judgment. And Abraham prayed. A city he wouldn't even live in himself. A city he wouldn't even go to himself. That's how bad it was. And yet he cries out to them over and over again, diligently before God, calling himself dust and ashes, remembering that he himself was nothing but by the grace of God. That's a huge part of it. But I think we need to be careful in calling down God's wrath and judgment. When I'm tempted to, I always think of this verse from Psalm 109. When we were at seminary, we used to sing the imprecatory psalm sometimes, right? We can get a little too zealous with that in the Reformed camp. Imprecatory psalms where we call God down, you know, to judge the wicked. 
There's a sense in which we had that in the Psalms and that's good and right. And there's an appropriate way, an appropriate time to do that. And our hearts, what needs to be in them. But be careful when calling down God's curses. One of the verses in Psalm 109 is Psalm 109, 17. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. You want to be quick to curse other people? Guess what God's going to do? Whenever I'm tempted, when I get mad with somebody and I think about wanting to curse them, I always pray for their salvation immediately. Thinking of that verse. Don't you curse somebody, Ray. Pray for their salvation. He loved cursing. Let cursing come to him. Then it says this. He did not delight in blessing. Let it be far from him. We should cry out to God for the most wicked of people that he would save them, that he would turn them from their sins. Until God judges them, until he's made it known. And even when he has made it known here, Abraham is interceding. Yes, it's because of the righteous. Don't think, by the way, that Abraham is more merciful than God. Moses will do the same thing in Exodus 32 at the golden calf. God says at that point, leave them alone. Just leave me alone. Actually, leave me alone, God says. Leave me alone, Moses, and I'll make a greater nation of you and I'll destroy them. All Moses had to do was shut up. And God would have wiped him out. And yet Moses begins to cry out to God, right? So Moses is more merciful than God. Abraham's more merciful than God. No. God is teaching his people they need a mediator. They need somebody to intercede between God and sinful man. Remember, we're at a certain stage in redemptive history here. That hasn't all been made clear yet. He's teaching them they need someone that can go to God on behalf of the people that God will hear. And who was it in Moses and who was it in Abraham who was crying out for mercy and grace? It was the Spirit of Christ. It was Christ who was praying for mercy. It was Christ who was praying for forgiveness. The same Christ who wept at Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered as a mother gathers her chicks, but you would not. And how Jesus, even on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It seems to me, beloved, that we need to ask God to have mercy. You know, I mentioned to you, Abraham, I mentioned Moses. In Joel 2.17, it says, let the priests who minister to the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach. Beloved, that's what we're called to do, to cry out to God, to show mercy, to give grace, to bring the gospel. God will judge. That's his business. He's going to do it. But we need to cry out to him on behalf of this nation, on behalf of this, uh, uh, this country, on behalf of the whole Western world that's racing into sins, the same sins that destroyed these cities. We need to stand against them. We need to not give in to them, but we need to not be calling God down God's judgment. Because that does not show the kind of grace, the kind of transformative grace that Abraham had, who knew he was dust and ashes and, and prayed for the cities. The whole thing is about whether God will destroy the cities. And Abraham keeps pleading with God. And God says, I won't destroy the cities if I find ten. Beloved, let us ask God for mercy. Mercy on wicked, wretched sinners. Let, him ask it, let us ask it for the sake of the righteous. That he has people among them. That there's still elect in this nation that need to be converted. Lord God, spare, the Mer spare America for the sake of the righteous. 
There are still those who stand against these sins and there are still those who need to be saved. Let that be our prayer and maybe God will send reformation. Maybe he'll send repentance before it's too late. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the mercy that we see that Abraham cried out for and how merciful you are, Lord God. If only 10 remain, those cities would still be here today. Lord God, have mercy upon us in America. How many wretched and wicked sins we are, we are running after in our culture. And we even see believers falling for them. Fellow believers calling good evil and evil good. Corrupting the word of God. Father God, we ask for you not to judge them. To have mercy upon them. Lead them into repentance. Lord God, cause the wicked to turn from their wicked ways. Cause them, Lord God, to see their sins like we do. We who are but dust and ashes before you. We who should have been cast off. Visit them with the same grace you visited us. And let there be a mighty reformation, a mighty revival, a mighty turning away from sins and wickedness again in the land. The land that you gave to our fathers so that they could worship you free from tyranny. Oh, Lord God, hear our prayers and have mercy again on your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.